The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Mark chapter 15. So as we come to this passage, as, as we've read it together this morning, there are a lot of things that stand out from this passage that almost seem like they could be taken from the headlines of, of the news, even in the last week. We have crowds that are crying out. We have a murderer. We have an innocent man. We have political leaders that are taking their stands. We have a trial, a conviction. We have a failure of justice. These are all things that if you just went and typed them into some kind of an online search engine, you would be reading headlines from this last week. But as I said, these are all coming from our passage this morning. They come from the study of our passage. And this morning, we're going to see people acting out of envy. We're going to see decisions that are made for self-preservation, We're going to see the innocent being punished, the guilty set free. And it reminds us of the messiness of the human situation, that this world we live in has been so impacted by sin. And as we read through this passage, we see things that should be right just turned upside down on their heads. We see things so out of order. We see things just so twisted and contorted. But we also are reminded as we work through this passage that God has his hand over this, that God is working through this to accomplish his purposes. In fact, this is part of the loving kindness of God. This is part of the redemptive plan of God. Even the one guilty of the most heinous of crimes, a murderer, is released as Jesus dies in his place. And so I hope as we work through this passage this morning, it'll be an encouragement to us to continue entrusting ourselves to God, to look to God, to remember that it is God who judges justly. And so look here with me at verse 1 of Mark chapter 15. It says, As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Now, if you remember back a few weeks when Jason was teaching us through the passage of Jesus standing before the council, the Jewish council, he pointed out several ways that this so-called trial was actually illegal. It didn't follow their law. It was held at night. It was held right before a great feast. There were inconsistent witnesses. They were just pulling from 
whoever they could to come and say something against Jesus. And there was no consistency among them. They couldn't get two or three witnesses to say the same thing about Jesus. And so now, as they're ready to take this case to Pontius Pilate, what are they going to bring to him? What are they going to accuse him of? So they quickly hold this consultation in the very wee hours of the morning, and it's basically just to get a rubber stamp on this. Everybody, we want to make this look like it's legal. We want to make sure it seems like we did this in the right way. So quickly, get everybody together, and we're going to get everyone's approval, the rubber stamp, so we can take this to Pilate first thing in the morning. So as soon as it's morning now, they hold this consultation, and then they bind Jesus, they lead him away, and they deliver him to Pilate. Why? Now, who is Pilate? Why would they bring Jesus to Pilate? Well, Pilate was Pontius Pilate, the prefect or the governor of Judea. So as the the governor of Judea, he was the Roman authority in that area. And he had the authority to, to sentence to death, to carry out Uh, capital punishment, execution, crucifixion. That's something that the Jews didn't have on their own. The Jews were limited in their power. The Jews couldn't accomplish what they wanted to accomplish against Jesus without the assistance of the Roman government. And even though they hated the Roman government, They sided up with the Roman government because it would help them in their cause, in their purpose. If you remember back in the early chapters of Mark, in chapter 3, even back there, we read that it was the Pharisees, that they go out and they held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how to destroy him. So from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is what it is that they're trying to do. They're trying to destroy Jesus. John, in his gospel, chapter 18, he says that they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, that is, to Pilate's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Seems to make sense. But the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And there we see what their purpose was. They didn't want only to have Jesus tried. No, they wanted to have Jesus killed. They wanted to put Jesus to death. And the Jews, even if they had their own trial and if they found Jesus guilty, 
they did not have that authority to carry out capital punishment, execution. And so they had to turn to the Roman government. So they bring Jesus to this man, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, the Roman authority in that area. He lived in Caesarea, but during Passover, he would come to Jerusalem. That's where all of the Jews would be coming during the time of Passover. And so he would go there so that he could watch over all of this this gathering of the Jews so that he could have a, a visible presence of his authority. Pilate is an interesting character. And as you read about him, as I studied about him, even this week, it's like he is a conflicted man. He's trying different things just to make something happen, to to find a place, to see what works. As we read about him in this passage, we see that he's really in a difficult position. But he made it only more difficult because he didn't do the right thing. You can be in a tough spot, but then to make the wrong decisions, and not because you don't know better, but willingly, willfully, knowingly to make the wrong decisions then is only going to make that position more difficult. So instead of doing what was right, he refused those right convictions Instead, he is swayed by the emotion of the crowd, and it ends up even worse for him. A little background for Pilate, so you can understand just some of his interactions with the Jews. He was placed in his position as governor of Judea in 26 AD, and he served in that position for about 10 years. Now, in 26 AD, being placed in that position... He wanted to make a a really good first impression. And so he had Roman soldiers carrying standards with images of Caesar into Jerusalem. They march into Jerusalem carrying these standards with a picture of Caesar. The Jews didn't like that. To them, that was idolatry. These images, and we're supposed to worship Caesar? And so they rebel. The Jews do. They start asking him to take these down. And initially, Pilate refused. Well, then the Jews actually go to Caesarea, the home place, the hometown of Pilate. And after six days, Pilate decides, I'm going to stop these protests by just sending soldiers out into this crowd and wiping them all out to kill all of them. And at that, all of the Jews together, they fell down and they pulled down the collars of their shirts and they exposed their necks saying, do your worst. If you're going to kill us, kill us. We're going to stand our ground. And Pilate realizes at that point, it's not a good way to start your governorship. With this rebellion, with the killing of an entire crowd of people And so he backs down, and he takes down the standards in Jerusalem. On another occasion, Pilate, he has a great public works project. We need to improve the water system. We need to build an aqueduct. 
Well, we need to fund that public works project, so where are the funds going to come from? Boy, the Jews have a lot of money in their treasury, in their sacred treasury, so let's raid that, let's take all of the money, and we can fund, debt-free, this public works project. And so that's what he did. Of course, the Jews protested on this occasion as well. And so Pilate sends soldiers out into the protesting crowd, dressed in civilian clothing, and then at his signal, they pulled out clubs and began beating the protesters. This was the man Pilate, not a man who made a lot of good decisions, a man that was influenced by crowds, a man that was influenced by greed, a man that was driven to such a great extent just by his own selfish ambitions. He was a brutal man, a selfish man. Pilate is not one to admire. The Jews certainly didn't think much of him, but it's interesting that here, He was the channel for them accomplishing their sinful plan, their devilish plan, and so they come right alongside of him. We can partner with Pilate in the destruction, in the murder of Jesus. And so Jesus, standing before Pilate, verse 2, get asked the question by Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, you have said so. Now, Jesus seems to be deliberately unclear in his answer to Pilate's question. There's just no other way around this. You you have said so. Yes, he is a king, but he's not a king like Pilate would think about a king or like the priests maybe had supposed. His kingdom was not of this earth. He wasn't looking to overthrow Caesar. He wasn't looking to establish a physical throne in Jerusalem. So he answers Pilate initially, you have said so. In verse 3, the chief priest then accused him of many things. They're just going to start throwing out everything that they can, hoping that something sticks and that it will enrage Pilate enough to carry out this execution. And Pilate again asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? Hurling accusation after accusation against Jesus. And Jesus doesn't respond to those. And we read in verse 5 that Jesus made no further answer So the Pilate was amazed. He's amazed that Jesus could stand there and have all of these accusations, insults made against him and not feel the need to respond, to not try to defend himself, to not try to have some kind of a comeback. No, he just stands Resolved, silent, committed to the will of his heavenly Father. You remember in Isaiah chapter 53, 
So we read about the suffering servant, that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. As Jesus is standing there with all of these charges, all of these accusations being made against him and giving no response, making no answer, not trying to defend himself. This is according to the will of God, according to the plan of God, that Jesus stands silent. This actually gives reassurance to us that what was taking place was not a surprise to God. We talked about this even last week, but do you remember Peter? Peter, in the Garden of Gethsemane, was told by Jesus to watch and to pray. And Peter failed in that. He failed to pray. And so then when it came time for Peter to do the right thing, he was just lost. But Jesus did take that time. Jesus was in the agony of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was beseeching his father. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He was resigned. He was resolved. He was committed to the will of God. He had spent that time laboring in prayer with his heavenly father. And now when the pressure is increased, when the heat has really turned on, we see Jesus committed to the will of God. Even when that meant terrible suffering, he knew this is God's will for me in this time. This is what I am to do. This is how I am to accomplish the mission that God, my Father, has sent me on. And so he's not going to try to figure a way out of it. He's not going to try to talk his way out of it. He's committed to the will of God. I find encouragement in that as well, that Jesus, as he pressed in in prayer, then when it was time to act, when it became so difficult, having built that foundation of prayer in his life, he was strengthened. He did the right thing. He knew what it was that was God's will for him. And he walked according to that. So much so that Pilate, Pilate was amazed at Jesus. Jesus didn't plead his innocence. Jesus didn't talk about the guilt of his accusers. Do you know what the chief priest has done? Do you know what this man and that man and the other has done? Jesus knew it all. Jesus didn't talk about the illegal trial. Do you know how they tried me? It wasn't even according to our law. Jesus didn't kneel down and begin writing in the sand. 
You remember that from John 8? When they come and they accuse the woman, and Jesus, without saying a word, just starts writing in the sand. And all of those accusers went away. No, he didn't do any of that. Jesus regularly, he he came to the side of those suffering injustice. He supported and he defended and he helped them. But here in his own greatest trial, he didn't defend himself. He was being mistreated, but this was the gospel being lived out before his accusers. The gospel is amazing. And I think that's part of what had the amazement of Pilate. He is witnessing the gospel being lived out before him. And he's amazed. This is not human. This is superhuman. This is supernatural. Pilate had probably gone through so many trials, had so many criminals and thieves brought before him. But it's Jesus and Jesus' behavior in this trial that amazes him. I want you to turn with me to... Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and I know that Jason brought us here when he taught, but I want to revisit this and see how Peter gives instruction to the church that comes from Jesus' behavior in his trial. Peter uses this to give instruction to the church. Look with me in verse 13 of 1 Peter 2. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So he starts out, Peter does, by, by talking about submission to governmental authority, to every human institution. And Peter says, even to the emperor, This was a wicked government that Peter is saying to every degree possible, submit to it, be subject to it. And then he moves on in verse 18 and he begins to talk about the role of bosses and employees, servants and masters is the the New Testament language. Servants, verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Unjust, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? Here's that phrase again. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I think that's what Pilate was amazed at. This gracious thing. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Pilate knew. He knew that Jesus was suffering unjustly. It becomes so plain, even in our passage in Mark 15, it's laid out so clearly for us. Pilate knew Jesus was an innocent man. But this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing when you do good and suffer for it and endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I take that to, to mean that this is, this is gracious living. This is the gospel that is being presented when you suffer for doing what is right and what is good. Verse 21 continues, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is laying out this framework for how we are to conduct ourselves as Christians in light of the way that Jesus conducted himself, even in trial. Submission to authority, governmental authority, in the workplace, be subject to your masters or to your bosses. And it doesn't end at the end of chapter 2 just because there's a chapter break there. Chapter 3, verse 1 begins likewise. It's a continuation of this same thought. Peter's continuing to build this out even more. Likewise, wives. Be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Wives are to be subject to their husbands, even if those husbands are unbelieving, and the gospel conduct of the wife can win the soul of the husband. Verse 7, husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, verse 8, all of you, if there's anybody we haven't covered yet, 
all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. You see all throughout how Peter is saying this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did. He committed no sin. He was the only person in human history that committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. When he reviled, he didn't return it with reviling. No, he did not repay evil for evil. He did not threaten when he suffered, but continued entrusting himself, verse 23 tells us, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And I think that's the key. Yeah, he was standing before Pilate. Yeah, the chief priests were outside hurling their accusations, being the epitome of hypocrites because they didn't want to come in because they might be defiled. Yet here they are, guilty of all sorts of crimes and making these these untrue accusations and charges against Jesus. All of this is being thrown at Jesus. But he knew that wasn't the final authority. He knew that he didn't need finally to answer to Pilate or finally to answer or try to satisfy the Jewish and the religious authorities. No, he knew that ultimately it is my Father in heaven. So he continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. There's no shortage of injustice. There's no shortage of evil in this world. But we're called, church, to entrust ourselves to God, our just judge, to live and to act and to behave from that place, from that standing. Not exchanging reviling with reviling. They said something against me, so I'm going to hurl an insult back at them. Or responding to suffering with threats but entrusting ourselves to God. Jesus, the only sinless one, has done this perfectly. And as we continue to work through this passage in Mark, we see the sin of the priest. We see the sin of Pilate. We even see the sin of this prisoner, Barabbas, come more to light. So look with me, if you will, at verse 6. In verses 6 through 11, we see the, the sin of the priests. At the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked and were introduced to Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. 
And he answered, maybe this is his way out. You want me to release for you Jesus, the king of the Jews? But verse 11, we read, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. The chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Barabbas was a rebel. Barabbas was one that wanted to overthrow the Romans by force, even if that meant committing murder, which he did. Mark doesn't say that Barabbas was simply a man charged with murder and awaiting trial. No, he says that he had committed murder. He was guilty. He was awaiting punishment, most likely crucifixion. And Pilate recognizes, we read in verse 10, that it was envy of the chief priests. It was out of envy that the chief priests wanted Jesus to be put to death. Out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus over. Out of envy. Pilate thinks that maybe the easiest way is to ask the crowd who he should release. Following this tradition, but the chief priests thwart his plan. And it's envy. Envy was the root. Pilate is is perceptive in this, recognizing what is it that's driving the behaviors, the actions of these chief priests, that they're doing these things. It's envy. Do you know what envy is? Envy is, is this root that then springs up and has all sorts of wicked fruit that we get to see. Envy is the root. One dictionary I I read translates this envy. It says it's malevolent envy. Malevolent envy. It's an aggressive and an active sin. It's one that seeks to do harm to another because of their good or because of their success. That person has succeeded. I want to chop them down. I'm not going to rejoice with those who rejoice. If they're rejoicing, I want to cut them down. I want to destroy them. I don't want them to succeed. I don't want to celebrate the good that they've received. That's envy. Envy is listed as one of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, contrasted with the fruits of the Spirit. Envy is a work of the flesh. Envy. Envy can be subtle at times. Envy at times can all even go unnoticed. But it always is destructive. Even just looking out from the front windows of our house, looking out to this planter that we have planted, and all of these flowers coming up and 
remember the, these irises that Natalie had planted last fall. They were just these little rooty balls and put them down in the dirt. You wouldn't even know that they're there. They were just there all through the winter. And then spring comes. And they begin to pop up. And you get these green shoots and then you get these big purple flowers on top of them. And though those are beautiful and, and they make a statement, you can't help but notice these, these irises in the same way envy. It can be undercover. It can go for a season unnoticed. But in due season, it pops up. Envy. And it makes a big impact. And it's never one to stand back and admire and say, oh, that's, that's beautiful. No. When envy begins to bear fruit, it's destruction, it's death, it's ugly, it's not to be admired. This is what we have for the wisdom of Proverbs regarding envy. In chapter 14, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy is like poison. It's it's destructive for the, the person that it's directed at, but it's also poison and destructive for the person that has it. If you're an envious person... Proverbs tells us it makes the bones rot, a weakness, a a frailty. The contrast of that is a tranquil heart. It gives life to the flesh, one that is content in God and in what God has provided and in what God has done. But no, the chief priests, they were envious. And look at all of the ways that this presented in their interactions with, in their treatment of Jesus. Even from the very beginning, they were looking for a way to destroy him. Not wanting to celebrate his ministry, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the sick, all of the good that Jesus was doing, and the more good that Jesus did, the more envious they got the more they hated him and the more they wanted to destroy him until they weren't content unless it was crucify him, crucify him. That's where envy brought the chief priests. That's where envy could bring us, where we call for someone's destruction instead of celebrating their successes. It's a work of the flesh, church. It needs to be combated against by the fruits of the Spirit, by going to God in prayer and recognizing it and confessing it and repenting of it and saying, Lord, take this envious heart out from me. It's rotting me from the inside. It's like poison. And instead, replace it with these fruits of the Spirit that these things would be evident in my life. 
that this is the way that I would act and behave. Oh, God, by your grace, root out this envy and plant down deep in me a true and a sincere love for others, the fruit of the Spirit. The priest's sin was envy. We also see Pilate's sin. Pilate knew what was right to do. But Pilate didn't act on the right conviction. Instead, he lets the desire of the mob decide his actions. Verse 12, he asks, What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? When they say, send out Barabbas, release Barabbas, I think Pilate was probably surprised by that. I thought they would have asked for Jesus. But no, they're asking for Barabbas. So, so then, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? And their answer? They cried out again, crucify him. Crucify him. He asks for their reasoning. Why, verse 14, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. There's no more reasoning with this crowd. He can ask a question. What is the reason he should be crucified? There's no answer. No. Only shouts louder. Crucify him. Crucify him. And I think you would be hard-pressed to find a greater act of cowardice than what we see with Pilate. He was weak. The desire of the masses pressing upon him, and he caves in, and he does that instead of doing what he knew was right. He knew Jesus is only here because of the chief priest's envy. The other Gospels record for us that that Pilate declared Jesus innocent. Find no guilt in this man. But he was a people pleaser. He was one that would sit on the fence as long as possible and avoid difficult decisions because he didn't want to upset anybody even when those decisions would be clearly the right ones. This is the right decision. This is what is right to do. And I know there will be some who are upset, but it is the right thing to do. And so that is how I must act. That's not the way that Pilate approached problems. No, he was selfish. He was a man that was only trying to protect his position. I'm governor of Judea. I need to keep the people happy. Because if there's an uproar among the Jews, well, that'll get back to Rome, to the headquarters, and boy, they'll remove me. They'll they'll pull me out of my position. And I don't want that. I need to hold my position. Instead of carrying out the responsibilities of his position in a right, in an upright manner, he just gives in. This is what the people want. 
And so this is what I will do. Luke tells us in his gospel in chapter 23 that Pilate delivered Jesus over to their will, to the will of the crowd. That's what drove Pilate. And so we see that Pilate's sin was simply just doing what seemed most pragmatic, what was easiest, what would cause the least amount of hardship or difficulty. Instead of doing what he knew, Pilate knew what was right. Pilate knew what justice would look like in this, and he failed. And lastly, we see the sin of the prisoner. The sin of the prisoner, Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Barabbas was trying to overthrow the Roman government by force. Barabbas was convicted. Barabbas was awaiting, I believe, execution. The three crosses that were lifted that day, Jesus being on the center one, and a thief on the right and on the left, I believe that center cross was originally intended for Barabbas. Barabbas is set free. And we read at the end of verse 15 that Jesus is sent away scourged and then delivered over to be crucified. This innocent man... Jesus, the only one truly innocent man, is sent to die. While the one who is guilty is set free. Jesus was scourged. What what this was is a a brutal beating, a a whipping. This handle with with leather tongs on it. And, And at the end of those would be bits of stone or or bone or metal and they would rip open the flesh of the person that they were beating. It wasn't uncommon for bones and even organs to be exposed, even for the person to die before they even made it to crucifixion. And this is what Jesus is sent to. It was Barabbas' punishment. Not Jesus's. But church, before we get upset with Pilate or the chief priests, or we call out for Barabbas to be punished because he's guilty, let's realize that we have all been in the place of Barabbas. Jesus may have died on Barabbas's That is, the cross that was readied and prepared for Barabbas. But Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died in our place. Jesus went willingly. Jesus went obediently. Jesus went sacrificially to the cross for us. And even when we look at this and we see justice perverted, justice twisted, contorted, turned upside down. What's played out in in 
Pilate's court. But we see the way of justification made ready for us. No, justice doesn't happen in Pilate's court. Justice justice happens in God's court, at God's throne. And God is able to declare us just, justified, righteous. He declares us because Jesus went to the cross for us. God's justice, even in this, superintended over this human injustice. The only truly innocent man died. And only by faith in him can we be justified. Only by faith in him can we be justified. That if we believe in Jesus, that if we believe in our heart, If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, there's new life. God saves us. It's the power of the gospel. This is a gracious thing. This is a gospel thing. What Jesus endured for us that he took our place. Yes, it was Barabbas' place, but it was our place in dying on that cross that we could be saved. Thinking back to what Peter writes to the church, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that is Jesus, suffered for the unrighteous, that is us, that he might bring us to God. We are not to be indifferent toward injustice, but we are not also to be surprised. We are to continue entrusting ourselves to the one God who judges justly. And thank God for his salvation of us. Thank God for the work that Jesus has accomplished for us in taking our place on the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it helps us navigate this life. And even as we look around us and and we read headlines and we see even in our very own town protests about injustices, Lord, help us to not be unmoved by those Lord, help us to not be indifferent toward that. That we would be a people among all people that understand what justice is and that we would work for justice and and just causes. That we would help the the orphans and the, the widows, the fatherless, that we would come to their aid. Father, that we would come to the side of those who are oppressed and afflicted. And we thank you, Father, that we can do that in a way that brings amazement 
because our Savior went to such great extent to die for us, went to such great extent to take our place, that we can understand justice because we serve a God who is just. Father, I pray that our hearts today would be renewed and refreshed and and reinvigorated with the truth of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. And I pray as we engage friends and families and neighbors and co-workers, even in these coming days and weeks about what is taking place in our world, Lord, that we would be able to do so in a way that is able to share and show the goodness of our God in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, continue to draw us near to you and fill us with your spirit that we would not walk in envy, that that sin would be rooted out and removed far from us, that we would not be acting cowardly as Pilate did, but that we would be those who are courageous like Joshua, even when there are great walls and strong enemies before us, that we would find our strength in you. Direct our steps this day and this week, that we might bring glory to your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.